Well, church, there will be a celebration of life service at a later date that will be announced by Stephanie's family. And this morning, we wanted to just give you an opportunity to grieve as together as we can in this time. A time to strengthen and lean into your hope in Christ. Um, And then we thought it would be most appropriate to do what Stephanie would most appreciate us doing this morning. And that's not to focus our attention on her. But to turn our attention to Jesus. And for us, there's, there's an absolutely beautiful place to do that. In the context of the series we started last week in the Gospel of Mark, it's all about Jesus. And so, um, if you'll open in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1 there in your homes, we'll spend some time uh, trusting, hoping, looking to Jesus together this morning in, in that passage. Last week, Noah began our series in the Gospel of Mark as part of, what, as part of that, he shared his story of how he came to trust and follow and hope in Jesus. And if my reflection is right, he said that he did that as a 19-year-old pagan hippie stoner. And uh, at least I'm pretty sure those were his words. And this morning I wanted to share a little bit of my story. My story is very different uh, from Noah's in many ways. Um, unlike Noah, I grew up in a church. I was there almost every Sunday. But our church, the church that I was a part of as a child, had gotten subtly confused about what it meant to be a Christian. And they thought that if you were good and kind, if you lived by a Christian moral code, that meant you were a Christian. And honestly, that was deeply troubling to me. Uh, Even though on the outside I appeared to be living my best life now, uh, that was not the case. I mean, I was an honor student, I was an athlete, I was a musician, I ran with a popular crowd, but I knew that it was not my best life. Not deep down in here. And I knew that if being good and kind meant that you were a Christian, um, if to live by a Christian moral code was how you got to be a Christian, I knew that whatever it looked like on on the outside, I wasn't good and kind on the inside where it really mattered. I knew that secretly I was a self-promoting, self-serving young man who regularly mistreated and even used the young women that were in his life. My good friend and mentor, Dick, it was his name, he took me aside and explained to me that Christianity wasn't just for people who were good enough and kind enough. In fact, it was specially for people who weren't like that. And so uh, my friend Dick took a group of us into the big city of Peoria, Illinois and took us to a movie that was put out by the Billy Graham Association. And uh, at the end of that movie, they asked if there was anyone there who wanted to follow Jesus. Not because they were good enough, but precisely because they knew they weren't and they knew they needed outside help A savior, they called it. Man, I remember I shot out of my seat. 
I, I didn't even know I was doing it. I shot out of my seat. I went to the front of that old movie theater. It was though I was being drawn by something more beautiful and powerful than me. Someone more beautiful and powerful than me. And that day, I entered into a relationship of trust and hope with Jesus. And gosh, I was 17 in, so it's been like 10 years. Um, okay, it's been way more than 10 years. It's been like four and a half times 10 years. Uh, from that day, I have followed Jesus. And I, and I want you to know, zero regrets. So I was a 17-year-old honor student and musician and athlete when I came to follow Jesus some 45 years ago. I was drawn by his love and his authority. And I desperately needed it, even though no one could tell looking at the outside. And I've never regretted it, not once. To know this Jesus as king of my life has been more than worth it. And so today, as we dash, literally dash through the rest of Mark chapter 1 today, I hope you too will see Jesus' love and his kingly authority and be drawn by that love and that authority to follow him as your king with joy too. So again, open your Bibles. Noah got us through Mark chapter 1, verse 13. We'll start in verse 14, and we'll, we'll, we'll run through the rest of the chapter today uh, and drop in on six brief encounters with Jesus, six different scenes, as it were. And, and Mark is going at a feverish pace at this point in his gospel of Jesus' life. Um, he doesn't philosophize about Jesus being the uncreated word like John did. Or spend chapters, whole chapters on Jesus' birth like Luke did. Or even trace his genealogy with great detail like Matthew. No, Mark comes out of the gate like a horse running the Kentucky Derby. You can almost hear somebody say, and they're off, right? Uh, it feels like he is skipping stones across the surface of Jesus' life story. And in Mark's hands, that's purposeful. It has the effect of piling up evidence in his case that truly Jesus is the very Son of God, full of divine love and divine authority, a servant who is king. And that's really what the first chapter of Mark is about. It's pressing us with the question what kind of king is this? What kind of kingdom is he bringing? So look with me at the first scene. In Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14, this is where Jesus launches his public ministry. It says, now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's interesting, Galilee is a curious choice of locale to launch a ministry. It'd be like a presidential candidate launching their candidacy from Franklin County. Right? It's a pretty insignificant place to launch from. It's a humble place, you could say. And the baton, Mark says, has been passed from John the Baptist to Jesus in terms of public ministry and teaching. Um, John's arrest 
and impending death acts like the trigger for Jesus' public ministry here. And Mark's connection of John and Jesus here tells us two things. One, Jesus is the one that John was preparing the people for. And we saw it last week, Noah taught us, that John was the messenger sent by God to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. John's passing from the scene and Jesus' entrance onto it tells us that Jesus is the one John was pointing us to. He's the long-awaited Messiah King. And the second thing this tells us um, is that the fact that Jesus takes the baton from John at a time when his ministry led him to imprisonment and imminent death, this does not bode well for how Jesus will fare with the powers of this world. This will be a king who suffers. And Jesus then, it says, goes about Galilee, this humble, humble little place called Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. Uh, gospel, it has been said, is news that brings joy. And Tim Keller puts it nicely. He says, uh, the essence of other religions is advice. Christianity is essentially news. Other religions say, this is what you have to do in order to connect to God forever. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. But the gospel of Christianity says, this is what has been done in history. This is how Jesus lived and died to earn the way to God for you. Christianity is completely different. It's joyful news, he says. The gospel is that God connects to you not on the basis of what you've done or haven't done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done in history for you. And that makes it absolutely different from every other religion or philosophy. Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Right? Jesus says the time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus is going to elaborate a lot more in the Gospel of Mark as we study it on what this kingdom is like. But here he just says, it's here. It's here. He announces its presence in the here and now in humble Galilee. And what that means in part, that is, if the kingdom is here, the king is here. As one writer put it, I love this, God has entered the fray. The world is under a new governance. And the amazing thing here is that Jesus is offering that kingdom to people like you and me, to, to fishermen and tax collectors, uh, regular folk such as we're about to see. And Jesus says here that we RSV to his, RSVP to his invitation to a kingdom with two simple actions, repent and believe. Tim Keller again helps us. He gives us a good definition of repentance and he writes, the word repent here means to reverse course or to turn away from something. In the Bible, it refers specifically to turning away from the things that Jesus hates to the things that he loves. And if repenting is turning away, believing is turning 
to. Okay. Turning away from sin and unbelief and turning to God in faith. They are two sides of the coin of faith in Jesus. This is how you enter Jesus' kingdom. Repent. Believe. And that takes us to the second thing. This is where Jesus calls his first disciples. Starting in verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So here Jesus calls the first four of his disciples. Take note of that. He calls them to follow him. In, In their day, it was the normal pattern for a student to initiate with a rabbi or a teacher that they wanted to learn from. Not for the rabbi to choose the students. Professor David Garland says it well. He says, um, Jesus does not put up a sign-up sheet here like church softball asking for volunteers or saying, Messiah, interested in a few good men or women. He doesn't post office hours like a professor when he will be available to discuss the kingdom of God with those who might be curious. No, he says, follow me. Tim Keller adds, Mark is showing us that Jesus has a different type of authority than a regular rabbi's. You can't have a relationship with Jesus unless he calls you. And then in this day, the rabbis would never say to students, follow me. They might say, follow God or follow his law, but never follow me. So with clarity here and authority, Jesus says to these disciples, and he says to us, follow me. And did you catch how they responded? They use, it use, John uses his favorite word to describe it in this, in this passage. Uh, Andrew and Simon in verse 18. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. James and John down in verse 20. Immediately he called them and they left their, their livelihood. These these men are walking away from their businesses, from their livelihood and their families instantaneously. James and John lead their dad right there in the boat. Um, Jesus' kingly authority is on display here. When he calls men to follow him, they follow immediately, even at significant cost. It costs these men to follow Jesus. But there is something so compelling about his call that they are willing on the spot to walk away from the family business and follow him. And these are the initial brush strokes of a stunning portrait by Mark in this gospel of Jesus' kingly authority. Professor David Garland describes how it plays out in the book of Mark. He says, Jesus speaks, come follow me. And it creates obedience that compels people to follow and join his band. Jesus speaks, be quiet, come out of him. 
and unclean spirits are routed. Jesus speaks, quiet, be still, and the wind stops, and there's a great calm. Jesus speaks, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up, and the dead are raised. Jesus speaks, Ephata, which means, be opened, and ears are opened. Jesus speaks, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and a fig tree is withered through its roots. Jesus cries a great cry, and the temple veil splits from top to bottom. What kind of king is this who can create such an immediate obedience from demons and the wind and the dead and the deaf and nature itself and split the very veil of the temple in two? Who is this country preacher who calls men to follow him like this and they obey instantly? He's the king of kings. He's building a kingdom, a community of believers, and he calls his first four disciples to follow him here and become fishers of men rather than fish. See, this is news that from the very first disciples who are called here, this is news that's intended to be shared. That takes us to a third scene, and it's another statement about Jesus' spoken authority. Uh, verse 21, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. His hearers can sense it. When Jesus speaks, when Jesus teaches, there is extraordinary authority behind his words. It's unlike anything they had ever experienced from their scribes before. And their scribes were experts in the law of Moses. They were revered teachers. Historians tell us that the scribes' prestige reached legendary proportions in the first century. Commoners deferred to scribes as they walked through the streets. The first seats in the synagogues were reserved for scribes. And people rose to their feet when a scribe entered a room. But even these revered teachers could not teach like this man, Jesus. They didn't have authority like him. Jesus' authority, though, Mark wants us to see really plainly, isn't just limited to his words. Mark, in the remainder of this scene, and, and those that follow in chapter 1, is going to show us that Jesus' kingly authority is primarily displayed in his deeds. Look, look at verse 23, the rest of this scene. And immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. 
And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So clearly, Jesus has authority even over unclean spirits, over demons. They must do his bidding. They know who he is, the Holy One of God. It's interesting, that title, the Holy One of God, is only used one other time in the scriptures, and that's of the mighty Samson in the Old Testament. The declaration of Jesus' identity here as the mighty one by the unclean spirit is the second such declaration in Mark's gospel so far. The first was back in verse 11 we saw last week that a voice came from heaven and declared, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. See, the spiritual realm, both in heaven and in hell, clearly know who Jesus truly is. It's the people who are still trying to sort it out. Jesus' powerful displays of divine authority are intended to make it plain to us. Jesus is the Son of God. He's King with authority to banish all evil from his kingdom. And the third scene ends this way. Jesus' fame is on the rise. It says, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. But... Jesus, interesting, Jesus deals with fame and celebrity here in a way that's very different than we would in our day. Somehow I doubt Jesus is nearly as concerned about how many views and likes he has as we would be. And we're going to see that in the coming scenes. Look with me at scene four. Jesus continues to demonstrate his authority over sickness and demons here. Verse 29, immediately there's that word again, immediately Jesus left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. He came, took her by the hand, and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Jesus here finds his way to Simon's house. We know Simon uh, as Peter. And this is where Jesus discovers Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever. A fever, right? No big deal. Um, you get some rest, grab a couple Tylenol, and you should be good to go, right? Uh, just a fever. It's interesting, though. The Old Testament talks about fevers in the book of Deuteronomy this way. It says... The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew, and they shall pursue you until you perish. This idea of, of a fever, of, of inflammation and fiery heat, according to Professor Garland, says that um, fevers were seen as a punishment sent by God upon those who violated the covenant. And because of this verse in Deuteronomy 28, some considered fever to be a divine chastisement curable only by the intervention of God. No one, he goes on to say, can extinguish a fever except for God. And no doubt here, Jesus is healing Peter's mother-in-law because he loves his friend Peter. But he is also demonstrating authority here, even divine authority here over disease and sickness. There will one day be none of it in his kingdom. Now, 
on a week like this, you cannot help but read an account like this and have come to your mind the question, what about when Jesus doesn't heal someone? Like our dear Stephanie that we lost this week. Does Jesus' authority fail him then? Does, does his love fall short in a case like that? Um, you know, in, in cases like this, it's most helpful for me to remember that the best answer to the question as to why Jesus does not or does not heal is best answered not by an if response, but by a when response. The answer is not a no, it's a not yet Jesus is announcing the coming of his kingdom. The fullness of it is yet future. That's what he means when he says the kingdom is at hand. It's here. It's very real. The fullness of it is not yet. And so the language here that Jesus lifted up Peter's mother-in-law, it's resurrection language. And this healing of Peter's mother-in-law points to something greater. It has not bypassed, this healing has not bypassed Stephanie Jackson. She is tasting of its fullness even now. Peter's mother-in-law now gets up and serves Jesus and his disciples. And this is what those of us who have been given life from Jesus do. We serve Jesus and his people, his family. And Peter's mother-in-law is exemplary in this. The fourth scene gets broader and it continues in verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to Jesus all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So the scope of Jesus' ministry is broadening here. As does the demonstration of his authority. He now heals many. He casts out many demons. And again, in the fullness of Jesus' kingdom, there will be no room for evil, no place for sickness. But here he will not allow the demons to speak of him. Why would that be? This is the second time he's done this. Back in verse 25, when he commands the unclean spirit to come out, he also commands it to be silent there as well. And it's a bit of a puzzle. But as regards these demons, it may just be that Jesus doesn't want the way the truth about who he is to be spread on the lips, is on the lips of demons. Right? End of the fourth scene, look at the fifth scene with me. In verse 35. Rising very early that next morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. It's interesting, all these healings and exorcisms so far that Jesus has done have taken place on a single day. 
a single Sabbath day as Mark has arranged them here. During the day, the man with the unclean spirit, Peter's mother-in-law, and then that evening, the healing and freeing of many. And as a result, Jesus is riding a wave of celebrity and fame and opportunity. The buzz is growing. This is a pivotal moment in the launch of his ministry. So the next morning, really unexpectedly, Jesus does nothing. He doesn't go into the office early. He's not meeting with his team to strategize. Instead, he's up early, very early, Mark tells us. And he's alone. And he is praying. And then watch what he does next in that 36th verse. Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next town. And I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And the disciples seem to be urging him to more activity, more ministry. Here where they are, seize the moment, Jesus. Strike where the iron is hot. They can sense that momentum is on their side. And if they don't seize it, they'll regret it. And the language here is that they hunted Jesus down. He dare not miss this ministry opportunity. Fame is knocking at their door. Everyone is looking for you. Everyone is, they say. Professor James Edwards notes that this language of looking for, the same language is used 10 times in Mark. Every time it has negative connotations. Every time. This is not the kind of renown that Jesus was looking for. I mean, who knew though? Jesus knew. And his disciples might have known too if they had followed him in his practice of prayer. Jesus has a different take on things. It appears that bigger is not always better in Jesus' economy. But obeying the will of the Father is. So Jesus leaves fertile ministry soil to go elsewhere and preach. This is his calling. This is his purpose, he says. And it seems that Jesus confirms his calling not by doing more, but by seeking solitude with his Father in prayer. And that takes us to scene six, the last scene in Mark chapter one. Here Jesus displays his authority to heal through the, a beautiful encounter with a man who has leprosy. Verse 40. A leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. Uh, this, this expression of leprosy, that language applied to a widespread set of skin diseases in the first century in Palestine. Um, scribes counted as many as 72 different skin afflictions that fell under the Old Testament category of leprosy that's mentioned in the dermatology manual of Leviticus 13 and 14. Leprosy was regarded as a divine punishment for sin. 
as such, it was something that only God himself could cure once again. And the dread of this contagion, it's reflected in the language of Leviticus. Look at a couple verses from chapter 13. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. Okay, you thought our social distancing was bad, right? He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That is, outside the people of God. Professor Edwards again says that the description of leprosy was not simply the description of an illness. It was a sentence. Lepers were victims of far more than the disease itself. The disease robbed them of their health. And the sentence imposed on them as a consequence robbed them of their name, occupation, habits, family and fellowship, and worshiping community. This leper, he violates this Old Testament social distancing law and and throws himself at Jesus' feet and upon Jesus' mercy. And he says, Lord, if you are willing... You can make me clean. The fact that he does not doubt Jesus' ability to heal even him, even his disease, is a remarkable statement of faith. He believes that Jesus can do only what God can do. But his doubts are about Jesus' willingness to heal him. And this is where our doubts often lie. We would agree... For instance, with the statement that God is love. Our doubts creep in and we wonder, but does he love me? Even me? In Jesus' brief two-phrase reply that he speaks to the leper, he speaks just as much to us. I will be clean. Jesus is willing. Even towards pockmarked social outcasts like this leper, even towards folks scarred by sin like you and me. I am willing, Jesus says. Be clean. And so in verse 41, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him. And he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Immediately. And he was made clean. Now some of your Bibles here read a little differently. They say that Jesus was indignant rather than moved with pity, that he was angry. Which is it? It may well be here that Jesus is in fact provoked to anger here, perhaps by the brokenness of sin and sickness and how it causes this man to suffer so terribly. But both compassion and provocation are present in what Jesus has just done And what he is about to say. So don't miss the fact that Jesus, when he spoke to this man, he touched him. Without question, this is an act of compassion. I mean, think, how long had it been since anyone touched this man? How long had he been social distancing? Years? Decades? If this were anyone but Jesus... This act of contact with this man would have rendered them unclean, according to the law. But Jesus' holiness, 
is more contagious than this man's disease. He is cleansed immediately. There's Jesus, or Mark's favorite descriptor again, right? Immediately. Such is the compassionate authority of King Jesus. Moved by compassion, he does what only God can do. He cleanses this man. And in the New Testament, lepers are not healed. They are cleansed. What follows are some curious instructions that may be more consistent with Jesus' anger than his compassion. In verse 43, Jesus sternly charges this leper, a former leper, I guess, and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus is stern with him, warning him not to tell anyone except the priest. The reasons for Jesus' mandated silence here and elsewhere in in Mark's gospel are not simple and they're not really that clear. Um, What is clear is that Jesus here is following the Old Testament regulation as he restores this man to health so that he can be restored to the people of God. Go to the priest, Jesus says. Let him certify that you're clean. It's also clear that there's a practical side to Jesus' instruction. As his fame spreads, his message is in danger of being subsumed by his miracles. When Jesus clearly intended his miracles to be signs that pointed to his message to whom he really was, the very son of God, the servant king who has come to cleanse and deliver us from our sins. And then we read our sixth scene closes as a result with this frustrating scenario. Verse 45, this leper, this former leper went out, began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. I like the way Professor Edwards ends the encounter with this leper with this beautiful insight. He says, Mark began this story with Jesus on the inside and the leper on the outside. At the end of the story, Jesus is outside in lonely places. The leper then has been cleansed and restored on the inside. Jesus and the leper, he says, have traded places. Early in his ministry, Jesus is already an outsider in human society. Mark, he says, casts him in the role of the servant of the Lord who bears the iniquities of others, from Isaiah 53, and whose bearing of those sins causes him to be numbered with the transgressors, says Isaiah. Jesus has taken the leper's place. It's symbolic of his taking the sinner's place, even our place. And it foreshadows what Jesus will do on that cross. He will take our place there. He will bear our sin there. Such is the love of our King for us that he makes this costly way for us to enter his kingdom where evil and sickness will be banished forever. 
And so Mark has been skipping this stone six times across the water of Jesus' opening days of public ministry to put Jesus' kingly authority and compassion on display for us to see. How would God have you respond to Jesus' love and authority? As we close in prayer, I just like to walk back through and let you listen to the catalog of responses from our passage to Jesus' love and authority as our King. See if you see yourself. See if you hear God speaking to you about how you should respond to Jesus in these responses. So let's bow in prayer, and I'll lead us through them. Pray with me. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as you pray, is that your need? Is that the response you need today? To repent of trying to be your own Lord, your own Savior, and to trust Jesus to be all that you need to be reconciled to God? Remember what Tim Keller said. The gospel isn't advice. It's the good news that you don't need to earn your way to God. Jesus has already done it for you. Because the gospel is not about choosing to follow advice. It's about being called to follow a king. Jesus said, follow me. And surely that means obey me. Is Jesus calling you to a renewed, even a new obedience in some particular way today? Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Are you fishing? Even these days of social distancing, are you reaching out in love to those who are still caught in their sin? Even Jesus' sternest instructions couldn't keep the leper from sharing what Jesus had done for him. Peter's mother-in-law, we're told, arose after Jesus healed her and she served Jesus and his friends. Are you serving Christ and his people? After what he has done for you, Are you letting that propel you to serve him as you serve his people, the church? Jesus, have your way with us. May your authority be absolute in our lives. Help us bow low before you as our our great and merciful king. This week, Jesus, help us follow you.